Thank you very much, Greg, for that kind introduction. And um, let me start by saying that uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you here to talk about the economic outlook. Uh, it's a pleasure in part because of this distinguished Mid-Ohio Valley audience, but also because it, uh, the economic outlook is just so darn good right now. Growth is proceeding at a solid pace this year. Uh, inflation is low and stable. And moreover, our economy has withstood several substantial shocks over the last several years, and still it remains on course. Uh, so I think we have abundant reason to be grateful for a very positive economic outlook. Before I begin reviewing that outlook, though, uh, let me say, as usual, as I always do on occasions like this, that my remarks reflect my views and do not necessarily reflect the views of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee or in the Federal Reserve System. It's now become quite uncontroversial uh, to say that the outlook for overall economic activity is fairly healthy. But six months ago, you may recall that many pundits were decidedly less optimistic. In the wake of destruction caused by two hurricanes, energy prices had surged. From the end of 2004 uh, till they peaked last fall, crude oil prices rose 56%, wholesale natural gas prices rose 129%, and retail gasoline prices rose over 70%. To some, it seemed obvious that higher energy prices would lead to significant and persistent reductions in consumer spending, which would bring overall economic activity to the edge of a recession. But that didn't happen. It is true that the growth rate of real GDP uh, in the fourth quarter fell by about two percentage points below the trends it had been showing uh, for the two years preceding that. But a closer look reveals that transitory factors played a large role there. Other data have remained robust, and the consensus forecast is now that real growth in the first half of this year uh, should come in at around 4%. Let's take a closer look at some of the recent reports that support this healthy outlook. And I'll start first with the national labor market. Payroll employment has grown rapidly, adding almost a million new jobs in the last four months, the four months ending in February, the last month for which we have data. This is more than double the rate that would be required simply to keep pace with the growth in the working age population. As you might expect, uh, with the jobs growing at faster than the growth of the working age population, the overall unemployment rate has been driven down, and it's now under 5%. Another indicator of strong demand for labor is wage growth, which has been steadily increasing lately. Over the same four months, ending in February, average hourly earnings have risen at 3.5% annual rate, markedly above the 3% growth rate that we had seen in the previous 12 months. The combination of rising employment and rising wage gains uh, has supported substantial income growth. Over the last five months for which we have data, Real personal income has risen at a healthy 5.4% annual rate. And that, in turn, helps explain the resilience of consumer spending. The consensus view among economists has long been that consumer spending is governed predominantly by households' assessments of their own future real income streams. Thus, despite rising energy prices last year and surveys last fall that suggested sagging consumer confidence, 
Inflation-adjusted consumer spending increased at a booming 8% annual rate over the holiday season, and it now runs at around 3.25% above a year ago. Looking ahead to assess the outlook for consumer spending, you have to start with income growth. Expectations are that overall labor market conditions will continue to be strong, continued job growth, moderate unemployment, uh, further real wage gains should lead to healthy advances in income and thus should support consumer spending going forward. Before turning away from households, I'd like to touch on households' residential housing activity. Now, I'm sure you know this has been a popular subject of conversation and it's been in the news. The U.S. housing market has had an amazing run in recent years. To cite one uh, measure, new housing starts rose from 1.57 million units in 2000 to 2.07 million units in 2005, a fairly remarkable sustained rate of increase. And that's just the number of housing units. On top of that, uh, the size and quality of the average new home has been steadily increasing as well. Another indicator of a strong housing demand was rising prices for existing homes. For the nation as a whole, the price of a typical single-family home was 55% over that same five-year period. Now, you're not going to hear me use the B word to describe this phenomenon. Instead, it's my view and many other economists that have looked at this closely, that fundamental factors can fully explain this, the expansion we've seen in housing demand, particularly rising real income on households' parts, rising population, favorable tax treatments, and uh, low, real inflation-adjusted interest rates. Now, right now, mortgage interest rates are not as favorable as they were a few years ago, so it's not surprising that we're seeing some signs of a tapering off in residential activity in many markets. For example, there were 1.28 million new single-family home sales last year, but so far this year, the sales rate has averaged 1.14 million. I see this not as a precipitous decline, but rather as a return to more normal conditions in many markets. This return to normalcy is especially pronounced in the informal anecdotal information that we collect from around our district and that my colleagues collect from around the Federal Reserve System. The multiple first day bids and final sales at above asking prices that used to be observed in many markets are now increasingly rare. Also, the amount of time a home takes uh, to uh, the time a home takes and remains on the market um, has increased, risen back though just to more typical levels. Looking ahead, I think it's reasonable uh, to expect the housing market to remain strong even as some further tapering off occurs in sales and production. The key point I want to emphasize here about housing though is that the housing phenomenon we've seen is not some mysterious independent boost to the economy driven by some sort of animal spirits, but instead represented a fairly understandable rational response by households to the economic fundamentals, especially very low real interest rates. Thus, going forward, the adjustment of the housing market to evolving fundamentals will continue, I believe, to fit within the standard economic framework of analysis. My assessment is that plausible rates of moderation in housing activity will not pose a problem 
for overall economic activity either this year or next. And moreover, I don't see diminished housing price appreciation as a major problem for consumer spending since, again, the primary determinant of spending is income. And we see solid and improving prospects for real income for the nation as a whole. Turning now to firms, to the business sector of the economy, the fundamentals for business investment appear to be quite sound. Capital formation, particularly investment in information and communications technologies, played an instrumental role in the widely noted surge in productivity growth that occurred in the mid-1990s. The unique fundamental driving force of that surge was the rapid and sustained fall in the relative price of new computing equipment and related goods. This investment boom resulted in a growing capital stock and, as a result, rising productivity growth. Indeed, productivity growth averaged only 1.5% per year for over two decades, but from 1995 to 2000, averaged just over 2.5% per year. Now, this might small, sound like small potatoes, um, but just remember that over time, it's productivity growth that drives increases in our real standards of living. And small differences, through compounding, small differences in growth rates can end up meaning big differences in levels later on. Thus, if, if productivity growth had remained at 1.5%, it would take almost 50 years for average incomes to double. But with productivity growth at 2.5%, that doubling time is cu cut to 28 years. Looking at more recent growth, productivity growth since 2000 has averaged 3.3% per year, which incidentally would double average incomes in less than 21 years. This is truly an astonishing performance, and it, it was, it's astonishing because of the fact that there were significantly lower rates of capital formation than in the late 1990s. It's understandable to get strong productivity growth when you're adding more machines per worker. But to get more productivity when you're not adding as much capital per worker is truly outstanding. Thus, the recent productivity gains appear to be somewhat more oriented around reorganization of business processes and less due to the application of additional capital. But as business investment continues to grow, and it's grown uh, at a fairly robust pace recently, productivity growth is likely to be driven increasingly by capital formation. We should therefore pay special attention to current prospects for investment spending. In my view, the fundamentals for investment are very encouraging. In the high-tech area, we are still seeing declining prices for many products. Business sales are strong overall. New orders for capital equipment have been on a pronounced uptrend over the last two and a half years. The cost of capital uh, remains very favorable in real terms. Capacity utilization in manufacturing has recovered from the recession, and any overhang in capital is largely behind us, and business profitability is running unusually high. Putting all these together, I expect investment spending to be relatively robust this year. Falling IT prices should continue to support technology upgrades aimed at enhancing efficiency for many firms. In addition, Rising capacity utilization rates suggest that many firms will need to add capacity to keep up with demand growth in the near term. And if this view is correct, 
capital spending should be enough to support overall demand in the economy, even as the housing market cools down. This is a good time in my talk to pause and review the bidding. It looks to me like we're on track for continued expansion with real GDP growth uh, in, at about 3.5% annual rate this year. Consumer spending should grow pretty much in line with GDP and will be supported by good job growth and real wage gains. Residential investment will flatten out or slow, but business capital spending should remain robust. And that capital spending will support productivity growth going forward, which in turn will support healthy income growth and strong consumer spending. While there are risks to this forecast, as there are with any forecast, right now I don't see a single scenario that's compelling enough to alter the central tendency of this outlook. So let me turn now to the inflation outlook, where, again, things are looking better uh, now than they had expected uh, to be six months ago. Back then, six months ago, energy price surge had led some observers to expect to see those prices pass through to a broad range of prices of goods and services, much as happened in the 1970s. But that hasn't happened. Core inflation has been low and relatively stable in the last several years. Our preferred price measure, the price index for core personal consumption expenditures, has risen at 1.8% over the last 12 months. And despite rising energy prices, core inflation actually fell slightly last year since the core price index had risen 2.2% in 2004. Similarly, we're not seeing any sign of rising inflation in the most recent data. Over the last two months, for example, the core index has increased at a 1.8% annual rate as well. To put that number in perspective, it lies close to the 1.5% figure that I and several others have proposed as an announced numerical objective for inflation in our country. Why haven't higher energy prices boosted other prices, much as many had feared? Well, I think it's probably because those fears were based on looking back at the 1970s and seeing that similar energy price increases had been followed by broader increases in overall inflation back then. But I'd argue that any analogy now to the 1970s is badly flawed. Back then, monetary policy failed to respond effectively to rising inflationary expectations and to the public's expectations of future inflation. As a consequence, those, those expectations became unanchored. Thus, at the time, higher energy prices became a signal for firms to raise prices and for workers to demand higher wages in order to not to fall behind a prospective inflationary surge. Today, however, the Fed places highest priority on keeping inflation low and our ability and willingness to follow through on our announced intentions appears to be widely understood. Thus, longer-term inflation expectations have remained moderate, even as energy prices have moved up over the last couple of years. Looking ahead, short-term movements in inflation rate can be hard to predict. But what is important is for the Fed to stabilize inflation over medium and longer-term horizons. And here, the indicators about what the public expects look fairly good. 
both survey data and market prices of inflation-protected Treasury securities, tell us that the public expects inflation to continue to be contained. And I'm confident that we at the Fed have the knowledge and the will to validate those expectations. Thank you very much. Be happy to entertain your questions now.